Hebrews chapter 6, and let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 9. Let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it comes to us without error, that it has authority over us, that um, the church didn't put this together. You put the church together, Lord, through your word, by your spirit. So help us to know the authority that it has on our lives. Help us to remember that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I took an altar call just now. I got a text from Sean that said that he couldn't hear on the mic, the, on the newfangled interweb stuff we do. What's it called? The... <laughs> The live stream. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, the word of the Lord. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed us for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. So this sermon, this text seems mostly as we look at it, as it's been titled, um, about hope. And what we have to remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to this little church, most likely, this church that's um, a Jewish community of Christian believers who've been cast out of the synagogues and are losing um, protection of the state because they're not under a recognized religion anymore. And that persecution is uh, right around the corner. God knows it. They don't know it yet, but Nero... Um, is about to really um, press very firmly down on the Christian church there. And so as we, we get this, this is a, a, um, a book that gives us a lot of different information. The first reason I, I chose to go to Hebrews next was um, it has a lot of Old Testament in it. And we were just, we've been through Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, um, Joshua. And um, so now you go to Hebrews and you see this is the, the, the New Testament the Holy Spirit applying these things to the New Testament church, which is what we did while we're reading it. But one of the ways that we make application from the Old Testament is a lot of what we read in Hebrews and other places in the New Testament, the way the New Testament tells us to interpret the Old Testament. And so as we get to this point, we're seeing, you know, what is the letter, who is the original reading audience? And that's one of the things you want to start with is like, okay, who was it originally written to? And if you can tell, like, under what circumstance was this given? Uh, what themes do you see that's written in this? So you take it all in that context, um, within the cultural context of what's going on, and in the context of the entire Bible. So you start to you read the Bible um, in this ways, and that's how you get your interpretation. And one of the things that we'll see in the, the letter to the, to the Hebrews here is, it's interesting, called Hebrews too, because it has to do with, um, that's the Old Testament, more a name for the, the people of God, um, then, then we see the Jews is called, and 
they're about to go through persecution. They're already going through persecution. They're having hardship, and they're going to have hardship. And there's not a time in life when you're not going to go through hardship. There's not a time in life when there's not difficulties. Um, there's not a time in life when you're not just some degree of separation from somebody in your life that's going through absolute turmoil, difficulties. And so what we need during those times is, is how do you get through it? That's the key. How do, you, how do you get through it? How do you help other people to get through it? How are we supposed to allow other people to help us to get through it? You know, what's, what's the way, how does God, does God speak to us at all in these difficulties? Because you have to not fall into the trap of believing um, externalities, external circumstances are an indication of how well you're doing in the Christian life for, so that if you're living your life well enough according to the dictates of Scripture and you're following God's prescription for how to live life, then you would imagine that you'd get through life with fairly small number of difficulties. Um, you'd be like a Joseph. You'd be very successful and you'd end up taking over everything you put your hands to that um, because you're following the precepts and principles of God that you would naturally float through this life as if everything's just blessed. And so that's not what we read in scripture, but that's what can be taught intentionally or unintentionally from pulpits or from Bible studies or just your own mind makes these things up as you see things are hard. Why are things going so difficult? What's up with this? What have I done wrong? And we learn from many places of the Bible, not the least of which is Job. It can be sometimes if you do things really, really well, every now and then that might be why things are happening to you, that your light shines brighter and therefore more attention is drawn to you and you have no idea what God is doing in the midst of your circumstances so that some of the most terrible people who are headed straight to hell apart from the intervention of God are living lives of vast wealth and apparent happiness. And then some of the most Jesus Christ exalting humble Christians with the most faith that we could never even possibly imagine are going through tragedy and misfortune Things that's like the worst, <laughs> and you just don't understand. And so the book of Ecclesiastes talks about this too. And it's just the idea that your external circumstances really has ultimately is not a gauge for how your life is, how your spiritual life is going. It, it has to do with how you are going through your circumstances is an indication of where your spiritual life is. Um, and the good news is um, your spiritual life is never going to be good enough to get you through the tragedies of this life unscathed and without any sort of mental reservation and without any kind of, you know, like you're just going to go through it. It's just like, you know, I, have, I can survive anything. I got it. That's fine. You know, your dog gets run over. It's like, not a problem. God's in control. Hallelujah. You know, it's like, no, we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. That what you do is you go through these things and then you'll come out the other end. And what God does in that crucible of 
difficulties and, and terrible things that can happen in this life is he strengthens your faith. Or you run from him and you do this and you do that and then he disciplines you to bring you back and you even learn from that. So he is a good father, blesses both things. And so um, difficulties in life, you just have to be careful because they're not... If you think every time something goes bad, then that means you've done bad in your faith. And then when everything goes good, then you've done good in your faith. Then you're the person that's in charge of whether good things or bad things happen. And then what happens is when you're really doing great and you really got your act together and something bad happens, I want to have a conversation with God. Because this, this is not right. I have done everything that has been asked of me. And then you end up like Job. And Job only got there because his friends kept badgering away at him with that message. And so finally defending himself against his friends, he's finally riled up to defend himself against God. And then God shows up, puts him in his place and says, Whoa, who are you, old man, to argue back to God? Which Paul picks up in Romans. So we had to be careful. But what we do see is... When we're going through difficulties, and, and, and when God knows we're about to go through difficulties, I've had people tell me this, um, and more than one person, you know, I don't really want to start going back to church. I don't want to start reading my Bible and praying again, because every time I do, my life starts to go bad. And it's like, well, you know, and you've got to be careful how you actually answer people, how you minister to them, but it means your peace and comfort is worth more than you than, than God is. And the other thing, too, is maybe what God has done is he sees something that's coming, and so he puts you in his word, and he puts you in this circumstance so that when it comes, you'll be better prepared to go through it. But people don't look at stuff like this because we're so anthropomorphic. I, mean, I was going to make up a word, I think. We're so focused on ourselves as the center of all things. You know, um, anything goes wrong, it's because I was going to do this or I was going to do that. As if the entire universe hinges upon the fact that you were going to play baseball today and it rained. And sure enough, you know, or Ryan picks a day for everybody to go camping and it rains, which it does, because Ryan's the center of the universe and all things conspire against him. You know, it's just the way these things work. So we have to be careful. But God knows what these Hebrew Christians are going through. He knows what they're going to go through. He knows what Christians in the future are going to go through. He knows what we're going through. And he's written this in his word for what we are going through and for what we will soon go through. He is very much aware of these things. And so as we've made our way through this letter to the Hebrews, we've seen how God is using this letter to encourage them, how he's using this letter to strengthen their faith. He's reminding them of the majesty of Jesus Christ. He warns them to pay much closer attention to the gospel. So the things that we tend to do, a lot of people, you know, when you're going through difficulties, you, very few people just continue life as it always did, um, spiritually. They, people will either dig in deeper or they'll pull away. And what he's saying is, don't pull away. When you're going through hard things, don't pull away. Because then you start to drift away. And then where are you? And then if you're an actual child of God, he will do things to pull you back and to bring you back. And you'll learn from that. But what he tells us is, don't pull away. And he informs them that the word of God, which you hold in your hands, which you have in front of you, which we actually, this is the amazing thing is we have the word of God. And that he says that it is living 
And it is active, which is an amazing thing. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces the division of the soul and the spirit. And it discerns the thoughts and interactions of the heart. So when you're reading the Bible, what the Bible is supposed to do is cut through the mess that you've put in your head to make you say, it's okay for me to live my life apart from God. The Bible will cut through the mess that you've created in your head to be able to say, it's okay for me to live like this or live like that or to do this or to do that because the Word of God is just going to go straight through it and say, no, you know better. And that's why people don't want to read the Bible because if you start to read it and you start to get the light shined on you, who wants to have that mess exposed between the, before the world? It's so much easier to go through life suppressing the knowledge of God so that we can sin in the way that we want to. Because most sinners aren't thinking, hey, I'm a, I, want, I don't go to God because I want to sin. But because the things that they want to do, we want to do, are contrary to the Word of God, obviously wrong. Maybe the culture says it's okay, but the Word of God is saying it's wrong. But... I want to cling to that rather than just abandon myself to what God says. You're not going to go to the Word of God for that. Because he's going to, I mean, nobody, who wants to get stabbed with a sword? You know, so people avoid that. So you have to be aware of it when you're handling the Word of God with other people. They're going to put up all sorts of defenses for it. And you have to make sure that you don't believe that if you just had the right way to say it, that they would magically become Christians. Because it's the Holy Spirit that works through his word. But we do need to have his word on our lips. We do need to know it enough where it has done work on us and does work in us so that we can just share what's happening with God in our lives. It's the power of the word of God and it's in our hands and it's to be in our hearts. And how are we to escape, the letter of Hebrews says. How are we to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How are we to escape? And that's what you have to know. Now, one of the things I love about Hebrews, it is not a victim's letter. It is not a victim's letter. You are going through hard stuff. And it's not, in fact, you're going through hard stuff because you're righteous. You're on the right side of things and you're being persecuted and losing stuff. But we're not going to whine about it. And I'm not going to say, it's okay if you don't even go to church. It's okay if you don't read the Bible. It's okay. Bless your heart, bless your, bless your heart, because you're going through so much. He didn't do that. He's like, pay closer attention. It's like you're in a battle. You're in a tournament or something. If you're in a football field and you're out there playing football, the coach doesn't come out and say, guys, these guys are beating you so bad. I just, what I would do is just, I just, you know, just, just don't even, just give it to them. You know, don't even... You know, it's not a good coach. You know, at least a coach. I mean, I hate to talk about Stan all the time about this. Stan coaches some teams sometimes that he knows. They're just not as good as the other team. But he doesn't coach them like that. I mean, he doesn't coach them by saying, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't, here's, here's our picture coaching up here in front of his team. Guys, you're going to lose. You're going to lose so bad. This is going to be awful. You guys are little. They're big. They got a lot of experience. You have none. Um, they've got great coaches. You got me, and I know that because you would say that. I'm sure. And it's like you know, but we, but you signed up. People showed up to watch. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, fellas. And just, just go out there and try not to get hurt too bad. We got doctors. 
you know, it's, it's so, you know, that's not what you would do. You would, you would find some way within you to say, you know what, if we play our best, <laughs> and you guys have, you know, I don't know, I don't know how do you, do you have ways to encourage people that you know are going to lose? <laughs> but you're not lying to them. And you always, I think you expect, I think you fully anticipate going out there and possibly winning. <laughs> it's good. Because you, your teams have won. And your teams have won national championships. World championships. What? State. Oh, I don't know about such things. I don't know how this works. So anyway, good for you. Congratulations. Did you have the best team? No. You just had the best coach. Awesome. Very good. <laughs> we had the best coach. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us how to act in our weakness. And he tells us how to win in our weakness. And winning isn't necessarily going to be you become the emperor. You become... It doesn't mean you're not going to get beat up. It doesn't mean you're not going to lose in the world's way of looking at it. It just means you will remain faithful. And the only way you're going to get through this life is if you have hope. And hope in the Bible, at least here in Hebrews, is different than a feeling. Oxford Dictionary defines hope of a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen or to want something to happen. Like, I hope it doesn't rain. But in Hebrews, hope is never called our hope as far as it belongs, it's internal to us. In verse 11, we will have the full confidence of hope. These are external things. Verse 18, hold fast to the hope set before us. In verse 19, it is a hope that enters into the inner place. So this biblical hope that's spoken of here is not just a good optimistic feeling that everything is going to be okay. Um, we have a joke we talk about in our family sometimes. There's the Optimist Club. And I think the Optimist Club sells um, Christmas trees. And I think what the Optimist Club does is they build ballparks and things like that with the money for, for children and things. And so, you know, you see the Optimist Club. I thought, you know, one year they didn't have the Christmas tree field sales area because they didn't think they were going to sell enough trees that year or something. And it was like, nope, you're not fooling me. The Pessimist Club took over your club. So that's why you don't see Pessimist Clubs everywhere, you know. And we're a lot of pessimists. So we have these running jokes we'll talk about the Pessimist Club. Hey, come join the Pessimist Club. No, not even worth asking anybody because they're not going to do it. Let's build a ballpark. Why? And nobody's going to show up. But let's sell Christmas trees. No, no, no. You can't do anything with the Pessimist Club. The Pessimist Club dies before it ever gets off the ground. The Optimist Club meets and only one guy shows up. Because he knows everybody else is going to show up. But that's what optimism is. So why do you have such optimism? And so if you just tell people, you know you just need to be hopeful. And um, I'm, I'm listening to a book called, uh, I can't remember what year, it's 1749, 17-something. It's about Columbus and lots of, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting book. But um, there's some about rubber tree plants. 
And I just thought, rubber tree plant. It's amazing, the whole history of rubber. Let's, you know, my goodness. Read about rubber trees. It's pretty cool. So um, this is what I do with my time. And so I'm thinking, you know, there's a song about rubber trees. What's that rubber tree song? Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. So I thought, all right, what does this have something to do historically with rubber trees? And so I, I couldn't remember what it was, so I Googled it and, or YouTubed it, and I looked, and it's um, Frank Sinatra. Who knew? Sings High Hopes. I was like, what? This song is about hope. This is the, so he's got high hopes. He's got high apple pie in the sky hopes. You know, it's this little ant that's trying to pick up this whole rubber tree and, and rubber tree plant and, and go with it. And it's like, he's never going to be able to do it. But then suddenly he's like, oops, there goes another rubber tree. Oops, there goes another rubber tree. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. Look what these ants are doing. These ants are taking these rubber tree plants off. If you just had enough optimism, you could do it too. If you have enough hope, come on, we got to have hope because then you can do it. And it's like, well, you know, they can't do, just because you have hope, you have, you're encouraged that you can, you know, chop down a tree with the edge of your hand, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it, you know, so just being hopeful isn't enough, but without hope, you're done, okay, and so the point being is hope needs to be something external to you, there has to be some reason for your hope, what is your hope? And so I was thinking about Frank Sinatra. The only other line that comes to my mind in great literature is, Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And it's not, Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. What, do you have one? Brooke, you're saying something. Am I missing something? I know, it looked good. What are you thinking about? New Hope. Oh, yeah, is it the whole name of the whole episode? Right. No, it's good. Perfect. <laughs> I thought maybe you had another great work of literature that I had obviously forgotten about. Star Wars. That's where Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's right. You're my only hope. Okay, but she doesn't say, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm hopeful that we're going to get out of this situation, so I'm letting you know because I'm hopeful that... No, you are my hope. I am placing my hope in you. If Obi-Wan Kenobi does not come, if you do not answer this message, if you do not get this message, if you don't come to help me, then I have no hope. It is a hopeless situation. And this is what the Bible is telling us. Not about Obi-Wan Kenobi, but about Jesus Christ. This is our hope. This is our hope. How are you going to be hopeful? Because we have a hope. We have a blessed hope. We have something outside of us that is coming to our rescue. And so when we look at, look at this, just look at verse um, 10. It says, For God is not unjust... So as to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And that word is deaconing, for deaconing, serving them in this way. The saints, the church. I mean, it's kind of a neat thing. It's one of the things we're supposed to be doing, serving the saints, um, deaconing the church, working hard to make sure that the believers, it starts with the household of faith. Your household, household of faith, and then the outside world. But if you're not taking care of your own family, and if you're not taking care of your own home, and then we all need to be able to take care of the things that are around us as much as we're able to care for. But God's not overlooking that. But he's saying in the way, that this church apparently is doing something. They're working to serve the saints because of the love that they show for the name of Christ. They're doing it for the right reason and the right motivation. And they're working hard. And you know people that do that. And it's good. And it's right. 
And then he says, what I want you to do is, we desire for each one of you, so not just the church, each one of you to show that same diligence. As hard as you're working to help other people, I want you to work just as hard to have this full assurance of hope. So <laughs> one of the discouraging things that can happen in the life of a person and a believer or anybody is you pour yourself out to help somebody and they just make it worse. You pour yourself out to help someone, and they, they take off, and they do great, and they don't at least say thank you, <laughs> you know, or they, they don't ever return it to anybody, and it's like, all right, you, you help somebody, and it just over and over and over again, it doesn't help. Or they reject you and everything you're doing. Or nobody seems to be helping you when you need help and things. But he's saying if you need to have this full assurance of hope, especially if you're already in a bad situation and you're trying to help somebody else, it depletes your resources. So where do you get the resources to be able to do it? Well, you need to have a hope that there is something else. It's not just we hope there is a heaven. Okay, so these things are all true. We hope these things are true. But he goes deeper than that. And he says, I want you to work hard to have full assurance of hope so that you won't become sluggish. You don't get lazy, but you imitate those who through faith and patience. And I, I don't like the word patience. I like the long suffering. Macrothumius. Macro means like real long. Thumia is like it's a good Greek word. It just sounds like it's a suffering type emotional thing. And you're just going to be long. You're, you endure things. And they're the ones that inherit the promises. The ones who endure. And it's interesting to see here the believer's life is not about, listen, if you just do things well and you just believe right, you're going to get through this so smoothly. It's just going to be cool. You're going to be fine with it. It's like, that doesn't take any kind of patience. It's, it's, it's driving, we have our grandkids with us, and I asked one of the questions I asked, just so y'all know. I said, Amy, were our kids that bad? <laughs> In the car, as you're fighting, as you're fussing, as you're having fun. <laughs> and what was your answer? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know, I was not that bad when I was little. So... My sister's not here to lie on me. But it takes patience to get from one place to another. It takes long suffering to get somewhere to where you're going if there's stuff going on that's difficult. If, we're in the, if you've ever been somewhere and everybody's just like, it's so fun, it's so perfect, it's just awesome. You know, getting there is quick and coming home takes forever because you're, you're excited about what's happening. What he's saying is the Christian life is going to be full of children yelling at each other in your car <laughs> which you know when you get past it you start to look back and you go oh I missed that until you relive it again and then it's but it's just this thing that you go through and you're just like all right we had to get through it so when difficult things happen in your life you have to hold on to the hope and you imitate those who did it before you. And what we see is they went through hardship and they made it through it. And he gives the example of Abraham because he's a father of, these, of our faith, of these Jewish people in particular, but he's also the father of the faithful, those who believe in Christ, Gentiles. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Okay, so, you know, I think it was at Genesis 
15, I think, or 17. He makes this the Abrahamic covenant. He passes between the pieces of these birds, these animals. Um, when you ever make a covenant in the Old Testament, it's always called cut a covenant. And you cut a covenant by you cut these animals in half and you pass between the pieces. And what you're saying is whoever breaks this covenant, that's what's going to happen to them. Okay? We're making a covenant. You break it. I break it. So it's a covenant made in blood. And now God, God, in this covenant, is guaranteeing the promises based on his own blood, his own word. So he passes through the pieces. God himself, Abraham does not pass between the pieces. God swears by himself. Who's God going to swear by? You know, we swear by something higher. We swear on the Bible or something. But God swears by himself so that if this promise to Abraham does not come through, God is undone. And God cannot be undone and God cannot lie. And so this is what he's pointing us to, that we need to think about the promises God has made and who God is. And he says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having macrothumius, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He had to wait too. He had to go through things too. But he did it. It was the faithfulness. And he went all sorts of things happening to him, things he did right, things he did wrong. But he kept the faith to the end. And then he says, people swear by something greater than themselves and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, so he is making, multiplying, and blessing his people. He promises to do this. And with the unchangeable character of his purpose, and he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, and that's his word and his covenant, his oath. He says it, and then he passes through to pieces to demonstrate what he's going to do through two unchangeable things. And it's impossible for God to lie. So people will say everything's possible for God. Uh, no, not really. It's impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. That is super good news for us. Then he says, so we who have fled for refuge... We've come to God for refuge. So if I go to refuge, I want to get out of the stuff. That's what the refuge is for. There's a storm. There's an attack. There's something. The refuge. And what he's saying is, I, so you flee from refuge, and then it keeps getting in. This stuff keeps happening. And so what he, that's why he's telling you this. I know you, you fled to me for refuge, but it's just a little longer. You're, you're going to get through this. There is something after this. There is something after after this. You're not being saved necessarily from this. You're being saved out of it. This is a short momentary affliction. You're going to get out of this. And that's why when you see the world reacting to a virus in a way that's like crazy in a lot of ways, it's because this is it. It's all I got. And then you get into issues of quality of life. They'll even kill, kill babies because of quality of life. Not the quality of life of the baby, but the quality of my life. That my quality of life is not going to be good if I allow this child to live. So you're going to have something out. This is what we do. This is how we, the people we become if we aren't careful. We know there is more than this. We trust in the promises of God. That will make us different in verse 19. So we have this, this hope. Well, 
verse 18, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to do what? To hold fast to the hope set before us. He's given us these promises that we'll have strong encouragement to hold fast to that hope. Because he doesn't lie. He's made a covenant. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a minute. And it's him fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. My blood. Whoever violates the covenant, his blood is spilled. We broke the covenant. His blood was spilled. Now all we have to do is be in Christ, trust in Christ, and we're forgiven our sins. We're hidden in him. He dies in our place. He's raised in our place. We're raised with him. We died with him. And then we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And that's just a cool anchor of the soul. Your soul doesn't drift away. Your soul, it's just like keeps you grounded. This hope is what keeps us in the faith. It's what keeps us able to go through life and difficulties and challenges in a way that helps us to be able to help other people, to be able to keep our head when people are losing theirs, and we be strong for people when they're weak, to be able to point to wisdom and righteousness, to be able to call forth truth, to be able to be that type of person that's able to, to be strong and to be able to trust in God so that we don't falter. We have this anchor. There's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to talk about that more next week. But for now, we just need to understand that the, the inner place is in the temple. You have the, the holy place and the holy of holies. It's separated by this great curtain that was torn in two when Jesus Christ was crucified. And he says, that curtain is my flesh. So he was the curtain. He was the dividing line. And it's been torn in two. And now he's entered into the holy place as a forerunner for us, so that we're coming into the holy places. We can go into the holy of holies. We get to go into uh, the throne of grace. And he's in, gone into the heavens before us. This is the promise of this hope that we have, that he's guaranteed us. You get through difficulties in life because this is not all there is. There is more and there are greater things. And we have that hope in heaven as an anchor to our souls. The catacombs in Rome, and there are catacombs in lots of different places, but in Rome, they uh, are their old burial grounds during the 2nd and through the 5th century. It was mostly used by Jews and Christians. Um, they have lots of underground passages and passageways, and they have these little symbols all over the place. Um, during the persecution periods, uh, you didn't want to share your faith out loud too much, so they had symbols that they would use. And most people are familiar with the, the fish symbol um, that was used by um, Christians during times of persecution because it was ichthus is the word for um, fish in Greek. And it's um, Jesus Christos Theos Weos. Soterion, Jesus Christ, and I'm not so good in my head doing this. Jesus Christ, Ichthus, God, did I say it in English the first time? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Son of God. Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. That's what it stands for. Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. Um, so they just do that. And then somebody else with their foot, yep, yeah, I'm one too. And then you see it in the catacombs. You see little fish symbols. You see the Alpha Omega things that we see. You see those things a lot. Um, you see the Good Shepherd 
sometimes, a, a drawing of a good shepherd. Um, you see a dove and an olive branch. But in hundreds of places, you see anchors. Because of this verse, you see anchors. And um, an anchor for the soul. So it's just a symbol for the Christian faith. Pretty much now we use the cross. And nothing wrong with that. But to think about the, the symbol of an anchor. You know, and I know that we think Navy. And that's good too. I see Jerry back there. He's like, yep. <laughs> but an anchor for the Christian hope. As a symbol that God gives us, so that when we take the Lord's Supper, when we hear His Word, when we are brought into the inner places with God, when we're made partakers of His body and blood, this is the anchor that's anchoring us in heaven. So no matter how far we might feel like we're drifting, no matter what we might think is happening, Jesus Christ holds us fast. He is our hope, and therefore we can be hopeful because we have a God who has promised these things and he cannot lie and what God is telling this church of persecuted believers in the church of people who are going through difficulties now is you have a God that cannot lie look at the promises of God he has been into the holy places he is God of the universe he is in control of this world and the world to come and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life and we have that anchor in heaven that's holding us to himself. So let's take the bread. Yeah, Jesus, as at the Last Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he was telling those around him, foretelling the fact that he's about to go to the cross. He's having this last supper with them. And Paul's writing to another church that's having difficulties within their own congregation. It's just sin and things happening that they need to get control of. And they're not loving one another. And he says it's, it's, you know, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're eating because you're not loving and caring for one another. And then in verse 23 he says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus... On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And see, even that is a covenantal remembering. It's a grab hold to the hope. Remember me. Recommit yourself to me and know that I'm recommitting myself to you. I'm not leaving you. I am with you. This is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper. And he says, this cup is this new covenant in my blood. Because he represented God and man in the Abrahamic covenant. And we broke that. We broke the first covenant with, with God and Adam. And in him, we all sinned. But in Abraham, we all live through faith. Because there will be a death in the place of man. And God had to do it himself. God becomes man because only that sacrifice would be sufficient for all mankind. And only God himself as a man could possibly endure the torments of wrath that he was about to go through and be able to do it faithfully and be able to come out the other side sinlessly so that he might represent us. And he says, this is my blood. And I'm giving it to you. So what do you deserve because of your sin? Death. Done. 
and now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're saying, I have an anchor. And he's not just up there. He's in here and he's with us here. But we have an anchor. And we're to hold tight. And we're to think much more carefully on it. So if you take your bread, and this is for those who have been, been baptized, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're a member of a, of a Christian church, believes in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaches the gospel, um, and you've been admitted to the table by your, the leadership of your church, and this is for you, it's not just for Second Street, but he says, this is my body, Jesus says, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You gave your life for the sheep, and we're your sheep. Remind us to hold fast to this hope. And you come down from heaven, and you live with us, and you even give us this as a physical reminder. So we thank you for this. And Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it. So let's us do that too. And Lord, we thank you for this cup. Thank you for the blood of the covenant and the support for us. And don't forget the body either. You, you died physically. And you live still physically. And this is your blood. This is the, the blood of the new covenant. No covenant is fulfilled without the spilling of blood. It's made without spilling of blood. You've already spilled your blood. The penalty's been paid. If we're united to you and we're committed to you and you're committed to us, then we're to drink. So remind us of this great truth that you give yourself to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Now let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Here's as we come before you to, to sing and as we go forth to proclaim your name and to live out this faith that we would cling to you more closely. If there are those who do not know you, Lord, that they would know this hope. That they could find an anchor to. That they would not be drifting back and forth, side to side, bobbing up and down in the water. But they would have an anchor. And they could see that you're the hope. You are hope. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.